need a Bible tonight and you need some notes, this is week three in our series about the solas. And I'll just put up the five solas, all of them for you to see, so you can see where we've been and where we're going. First week we talked about sola scriptura, that's scripture alone. And the big idea in that talk was that um, the Bible is our sole and final authority for determining truth about God, not councils, not popes, not uh, tradition, but the Word of God is our final authority. We talked about sola gratia, which is grace alone, and we talked about really the idea that we, left to ourselves, have no hope of saving ourselves, of changing ourselves, of reforming ourselves, that we can't on our own move towards God, but that we're dependent on His grace to reach out to us. Tonight we'll talk about sola fide, and tonight just sort of bleeds over and dovetails with sola Christus uh, that we're going to talk about next week, and then the last week will be sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so that's where we've been, and that's where we're headed. Tonight is sola fide, faith alone. Uh, Americans, you know this to be true, are fascinated with high-profile, high-drama legal cases. And that's true if it's local. There's one going on locally right now uh, that has been in the paper, or at least it was in the paper this morning, and I'm sure will be in the paper uh, in days to come. Uh, but we don't just like it on a local level or a national level. We like to, to watch fiction about it. We like to watch TV shows about it. And so my guess is that some of you have watched some of these TV shows. How many? I got Matlock, The Practice, Perry Mason, Boston Legal, Better Call Saul, and Jag. How many of you have at least watched one episode of one of those shows? So just about everybody. If you haven't, you're out of the loop completely. But all these shows, different spins on legal dramas, legal situations, lawyer shows, and we love these shows. We watch movies about lawyers, and I really had to trim this down, but I threw a few of them up here. Uh, Aaron Brockovich, My Cousin Vinny, Philadelphia The Firm, A Few Good Men, A Time to Kill, and Twelve Angry Men. Kind of went old school with that one, but I bet you've seen those. And John Grisham, okay, moving out of TV and in and out of movies, John Grisham has made a billion jillion dollars writing the exact same story over and over and over again and putting a different title and a different cover on it. And it is unbelievable how many books this guy has written. And they all sort of center on legal dramas. We, as a society, we're fascinated by these legal issues. It sort of gets ramped up to a whole new level if the person accused is a celebrity. And they might be a celebrity before the accusation, which sort of intrigues us, or the accusation itself may make the person a celebrity. But this is big bucks in the entertainment industry. This is uh, cable news and the talking heads making millions of dollars off of advertising because we tune in in the evenings, in the mornings, during the day to watch people talk about what's going to happen in this case and who really did it and who was behind you know, this crime and what was the motive. And we just love to watch people analyze this stuff. And really, as a culture, we just are fascinated with a trial being sort of publicly carried out right before our eyes. And we tend to think 
All of these people are guilty. I'm not going to make judgments about the people I'm about to put on the screen. We tend to think all these people are guilty when we hear the evidence. And then when there's an acquittal, we're just sort of outraged and shocked. And so here's some some pictures of people, and I'm not going to read all the names. Some of them you may recognize and some of them you may not. But all famous people, either before their crime or after, some of them, who got away with it, who got off. And we sort of watch the legal drama transpire right in front of our eyes, and you finally hear that not guilty verdict, and it's just an amazing thing. Uh, I will never forget, in middle school, Crockett Elementary, eighth grade, Miss Green's science class, fourth period, right before lunch, they kept us long, and they turned the TVs on in the classroom to watch the OJ verdict. And so, you know, where were you when OJ was was acquitted. I was in Miss Green's class. The point here is not to say all the folks up on the screen were innocent, and the point is not to say they're guilty, okay? We'll leave that for smarter people. The point is to say, when the verdict was read for each of these individuals, you are not guilty. There were lasting and life-changing consequences for that person when that verdict was read. Sort of everything is hanging in the balance. And when the jury comes back and they say, we find you not guilty of the crime, it's a legal declaration. And you understand and I understand that declaration by the jury doesn't change what did or did not happen. Right? Has no no real impact on whether the crime was or was not committed by this person, but is a legal declaration where a group of peers hear the evidence and they come back and they say, you are not guilty. When we talk about sola fide, we're talking about the biblical doctrine of justification, okay? The biblical doctrine where God justifies us because of what Christ has done, and it's a legal declaration. There's nothing that actually changes as to whether we are or are not guilty. We are guilty. That's clear and established and the evidence is in and there's no arguing it. But when this legal declaration comes down, there's lasting consequences for us. And in the, in the case of justification, they are certainly good consequences. So we're going to talk about justification. We're talking about how that happens through faith. And that means we're talking about sola fide. Theologians call this the material principle of the Reformation. Some of you pointed out a couple of weeks back when we talked about sola scriptura, and I told you it was the formal principle of the Reformation that I misspelled principle. I spelled it P-A-L, and that was just because I'm a bad speller. And you see that all the time up on the screens, and usually I just ignore it when I notice it on a Sunday. I had a misspelled word Sunday morning. Uh, But it's not principal. Your buddy, the principal, but is a principle, P-L-E. This is, sola fide, the material principle of the Reformation. And you're saying, I don't know what that means. Here's what it means. This is the heart of the matter, right? This is really getting down to the big issue of the Protestant Reformation, right? We're looking back 500 years. We're saying, why is it such a big deal that this guy named Luther, this, this German monk, nailed the theses up on the church door and started this movement. Why is that so impactful for history, and why is it so important from a theological standpoint? This is the heart of the matter. 
This is sort of the crux of the debate. This is really the central issue into why the Reformers split off from Rome. And it's really a central issue in thinking about how we're saved. So this is the material principle of the Reformation. Here's a quote from Thomas Watson just to sort of frame the whole discussion tonight. Thomas Watson was a Puritan. He lived uh, a little while after the Reformation had taken place. So he wasn't a Reformer. But this is what he says about sola fide and justification. Justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous, like a defect in a foundation. Justification by Christ is a spring of the water of life. To have the poison of corrupt doctrine cast into this spring is damnable. That's pretty strong language. What Watson is saying is, if you miss this, you miss salvation. If you miss this, you miss heaven. If you miss this, you miss a relationship with God. You can have religion, and you can have all the trappings of church and all that stuff. But if you miss this doctrine, he says it's a damnable mistake. So what did Rome believe? Let's talk about that. Sort of rewind the clock if we can. Rome certainly believed faith was important, right? So when the reformers say sola fide, it's not like Rome said, what do you mean faith? No, faith doesn't matter. Rome believed that faith was important. But Rome also taught that our good works were required for earning the righteousness of God. Rome taught that when God saved sinners, his grace was infused to us so that we are then able to contribute to our own righteousness. Okay? Rome talks about grace. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Rome believed in grace. They just sort of believed what you needed from grace was, as we described it, like a spiritual kick in the pants, like a cup of coffee in the morning that gets you going or a Red Bull that gets you going. Like you're up and you're moving. You just need a little boost to get going. And the reformer said, no, 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 no. You're not up and going at all. Grace brings you to life. You are spiritually dead. That was one difference when we talked about sola uh, gratia. When we talk about sola fide, Rome is saying your good works come alongside your faith and they help you to earn this righteousness of God. And they would say that God's grace is infused to you. It's actually given to you in a way that you're then able to contribute to your own righteousness. So let me try to explain this a little bit. Thomas Aquinas, he lived several hundred years before the Protestant Reformation. Uh, He's a medieval scholastic theologian, and he had a really great haircut. Don't you like that? Not only did he have the monk ring, but he also had the, the monk, I don't know what you call that little thing on the front, but that's fantastic. Really looks good. Um... I shouldn't say much because I couldn't even pull that off right there. So, Aquinas said, let me just tell you some things that he taught. He said that when you keep the commands of Christ, when you are regular in confession, not meaning confession to God, but going to the confessional, to the booth, right? When you perform penance, when you take the sacrifice, God's grace is infused. That's sort of the idea they would talk about or the word they would use. It was infused to you so that over time you can obtain righteousness. 
And this may seem a little bit strange to you, but understand where we're we're coming from here. Aquinas, in the, the Catholic position before the Reformation, would say that God's grace is given to us and that as we sin, it sort of gradually dissipates, kind of like a battery draining, right? As you sin, God's grace kind of goes away. And then as you do good things, it's kind of like you plugged in your phone and you're back charging up again, right? So you did some bad stuff and God's grace is kind of winding down and you just spiritually, you're kind of more disconnected to God because your sin is affecting his grace and it's all just sort of draining. But then when you do confession and you do penance and you go and you take the sacraments at church and you do all of these things, you keep the commands of Christ, then that sort of is like you're plugging into the power source and you're charging back up and you're back into God's good graces. And the reformers just kind of looked at that and said, we, we don't see that in the Bible. That's not what we see portrayed. Flowing out of this, we've we got to talk about the idea of purgatory. We haven't brought this up. Purgatory is a Catholic idea. It is a process and a place, both, of purification. And most people, or many people, depending on the, the Catholic source that you're listening to, that I think most or many, will end up, after they die, going to purgatory. You won't find it mentioned in the Bible. You'll find it sort of alluded to in some of the extra books, the Apocrypha, that uh, the Catholic Church recognizes as Scripture, and Protestants have never recognized as scripture, the early church fathers didn't recognize them as scripture. Uh, but purgatory is this idea you go to this place, and there's a process that you've got to go through. This is a picture of Dante's idea of purgatory, sort of became popular through uh, the Inferno. And uh, some of you may have read that in high school. And he just kind of has levels, and this is where you go, and this is who you'll meet, and these are the things that need to happen. And you'll be there for some amount of time. Because when you died, you had all these sins that just, like, they were holding you back from really obtaining the righteousness of God. You had all these things. Maybe you did the the confession and the, the penance and all the stuff, but you didn't cover everything. And so when you die, you've got this stuff that you kind of need to take care of. And so you're going to go to purgatory and you're going to sort of get it dealt with. Just an interesting piece of trivia for you. The word purgatory was unknown and unused before the 11th century. That means you went from the birth of Jesus, the early church in the first century, all the way up thousand years before anybody says anything about purgatory. You won't find it in the the early church fathers. You won't find it in the early councils. It's not talked about. And then it just sort of appears in the medieval period and becomes a central idea of Catholic teaching. Really, it's sort of a logical consequence of their idea of God's grace and our good works. So let's go to Martin Luther. Martin Luther grows up in this environment. We all know about the 95 Theses. He pins them up on the, the, the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And uh, he starts to study. And he's studying for about two years. He's studying the book of Psalms. He's studying Galatians. And he's especially studying Romans. And so take your Bible out. I want you to see the one verse that infuriated Martin Luther. Romans chapter 1, verse 17 Romans 1.17 says, 
In it, that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther read that verse and he just, he couldn't wrap his monkish Catholic mind around what Paul was saying. Because everything he had ever been taught was the righteousness of God is something you have to earn. It's something you've got to work towards. And if you die before you get there, you're going to go to purgatory and you're going to work it off there. But it's on you to earn this righteousness of God. And he's reading Romans 1.17 and it's just a total disconnect. He can't, he can't see how do, how do I get that righteousness. He couldn't connect the dots. And so look at this quote from Luther. He's thinking about all the things he had tried to do to earn righteousness from God. And he says this, I was indeed a pious monk and followed the rules of my order more strictly than I can express. If ever a monk could obtain heaven by his monkish works, I should certainly have been entitled to it. Of this, all the friars who have known me can testify. If it had continued much longer, I should have carried my mortification even to death by means of watchings, prayers, reading, and other labors. But what can come from a heart like mine? How can I stand before the holiness of my judge with works polluted in their very source? And he's he's looking at Romans 117 and he's saying the righteousness of God. I've got to earn it. I've got to earn it. So I'm going to become a monk, and I'm going to read, and I'm going to do confession, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to physically harm my body as a form of penance. I'm going to do all of this stuff to try to earn this righteousness. And he does it, and he does it, and he does it, and he looks up and he says, the only problem is I know my heart. I can't pray enough to fix my heart. And I can't do enough penance to fix my heart. There's no way I can earn this righteousness. And he's locked in this tower in Wittenberg, and he's reading one, uh, Romans 1.17, and all of a sudden the light bulb goes off. And he just understands, God doesn't expect me to earn it. And he's looking at Romans 1.17, and he says, uh, starting in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew and the Greek, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And Luther says as he's studying, this is fascinating. Two years after he nailed the theses on the church door in Wittenberg, he still doesn't have this completely worked out in his mind. You understand that? When he nails the the 95 theses on the church door, he doesn't have all of Protestant theology worked out in his brain. He just knows Rome is wrong. And he starts studying, and he keeps studying, and he's wrestling with it, and he can't make sense of it. And two years later, he's studying, he's looking at Romans 117, and he says, as he got it, the light bulb goes off. That's my, my phrase. Luther would say, the gates of paradise swung open. And I felt in that moment I was born again. Because I understood it's not up to me to earn the righteousness of God, but I receive it as a gift, and I receive it by faith. So, here's Reformation teaching. You ready? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Justification is a legal term that describes God declaring sinners righteous. 
Just like we talked about earlier in these legal cases. This acquittal comes in. This not guilty verdict comes in. It doesn't change what has happened. It doesn't change the actual guilt of the person. But it's a declaration with lasting consequences. And the reformers say it's a declaration that sinners are righteous. Not based on their own righteousness, but based on the righteousness of Jesus. The righteousness of Christ is imputed or credited to those who trust in Christ alone. You notice Rome used the word infused. Like it's actually given to you in some mysterious sense and it can increase or decrease depending on your obedience or your sin. And the reformer said, no, 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 that's not really how it works. What happens is when you put your faith in Christ, there is a legal declaration made that you, the sinner, are counted as righteous. It's this legal declaration of the judge saying, even though we all know you're guilty, I'm declaring you righteous because the good works, the righteousness of Christ is being credited to your account. Like an accounting transaction has taken place. Your sin is credited to Christ and his righteousness is credited to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Here's a few quotes, uh, some of these from Martin Luther and some of them uh, from a few other folks. Martin Luther said this, When the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. This is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Right? So we read earlier, Watson says, if you miss it, it's damnable. It's that serious. The stakes are that high. And Luther is just saying the exact same thing. He's saying, you lose this doctrine, you lose everything. You have nothing. You have religion and you have ritual, but you don't have a true church. Here's another quote. Uh, This one comes from Charles Spurgeon. And I think I put Luther's name on the screen, but this is actually Spurgeon uh, a few years later. He says, the way of reaching this state of justification is not by tears or prayers or humblings or working or Bible reading or church going or chapel going or sacraments or priestly absolution. None of those things will help you get the righteousness of God. But it's faith. Which faith is a simple and utter dependence in believing in the faithfulness of God, a dependence on the promise of God because it is God's promise and it is worthy of dependence. You can't do enough good things to receive this grace and to receive this righteousness and to be justified before God. It will never happen. It's just a simple dependence, a simple faith, a simple trust in the promises of God. I think I've got a the next quote I think is from Luther. He says, faith is a living, restless thing. It cannot be inoperative. We are not saved by works, but if there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. So you understand that when Luther and the Reformers start saying, you don't have to do good things in order for God to justify you. That's not how it works. What the Catholic Church hears them saying is, you can go do whatever you want to do as long as you believe in Jesus. You can go live like a heathen as long as you have faith in Jesus. And Luther fires back and what he's saying is, that's not at all what we are teaching. You have completely twisted this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And he says, it's a living, restless thing, right? That's sort of 
Luther's way of saying what James says. We'll look at it in a minute in James 2 where he says, faith without works is dead. And Luther says, no, no, no. Real faith is a living thing. It's, it's an operative thing. And if works aren't present in your life, there's something amiss with your faith. One last quote. This is from a guy named Philip Melanchthon. This is one of Luther's star pupils. And he said, It is taught that good works should and must be done, not that a person relies on them to earn grace, but for God's sake and to God's praise. Faith alone always takes hold of grace and forgiveness of sin, Because the Holy Spirit is given through faith, the heart is also moved to do good works. Let's look at the Bible. We've we've talked about what they taught in the Reformation. Let's see what the Bible teaches. Two simple ideas on this, this idea of sola fide and justification. The Bible clearly teaches that we are justified before God through faith alone. This is crystal clear in the Scripture. The way that a sinful person is declared righteous is not by earning that righteousness, but it's by trusting on the promises of God and believing the gospel. It's only by faith alone. So pick your Bible up. We're going to read these verses. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. I've read in multiple, multiple commentaries the same sentiment about this paragraph we're about to read, that it's the most important paragraph that's ever been written. So you take that for what it's worth. You don't have to agree with, the, with the, uh, the importance of it, but you do have to agree with what it says. And this is what it says, Romans three twenty one. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now look. That seems pretty clear, right? On this side of the Reformation, we look at that verse and we just say, it seems pretty obvious. Righteousness doesn't come through the law, through keeping the law. Righteousness comes through faith in Jesus. But you've just got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years where people don't have access to the Bible. Many can't read. And they go to church. And what they hear from the priest and the homily is... You have to earn the righteousness of God. They don't know any better. They don't know any better. And then in the Reformation, you have a a guy named Gutenberg who makes a printing press. You have a guy named Erasmus who publishes a, a Greek edition of the New Testament. New Testament in the original language. And Luther is reading the original, not the Latin translation. Not what Rome says, but the original. And he reads this, and Luther just sort of says, well, it seems kind of obvious. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Like, well, what about like how good I can be? Paul says it's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Look at verse 28. We hold... 
that no one is justified by faith, that, excuse me, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Justification by faith, not by works. Flip over to the right and look at Galatians chapter 2. This is another book that was impactful for Luther as he's studying and he's trying to put all these puzzle pieces together. He's trying to undo what he's been taught. Galatians 2.15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Again, when you read it, it's pretty clear. Flip over one, one or two pages to the next book. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Starts off saying in verse 1 that you're dead, spiritually dead. Verse 4, this is God's grace. God made you alive in his mercy because he loved you while you were dead. He made you alive. By grace you have been saved. Now look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You add those passages up, it's really clear. We are justified before God through faith alone. The next idea is this. The Bible teaches that good works are a result of faith. So we agree with Luther, we agree with the Reformers when they say, if your faith doesn't lead to good works, there's something amiss with your faith. There's something not right. All the dots haven't been connected because true faith leads to good works. And I'm going to let you read uh, the first one, two, three. Let's just jump to the one that is, is sort of the the controversial passage and look at James chapter 2. We just read Paul three times. He says so clearly, we are justified not by works of the law, but through faith. Now let's listen to James. James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, well, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works? And if you're reading along, now you've got like bells going off and lights and whistles. And you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That sounds very Catholic. You're saying Abraham was justified by works. Wasn't he justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed it was counted to him as righteousness and that scripture was fulfilled. He was called a friend of God. You see, listen to verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That kind of sounds like a death knell to the whole lesson tonight, right? Faith alone, sola fide, the whole reformation, the material principle, the heart of the matter. And James says, look, I'm just looking at the Old Testament. You're justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Okay, I put Luther on a pretty good pedestal throughout this series, and I think rightly so. Let me just tell you one thing I don't think is great about Luther. Luther read the book of James. He knew it was in the Bible, right? He knew about those verses. And when people asked Luther about the book of James, he said, it's an epistle of straw. An epistle of straw. Meaning, I don't like the book of James. And you think, like, well, come on, you're Martin Luther. Like, figure it out. Put the pieces together. And sometimes we just need to remember Luther was a man. And he had years and years and years and centuries of tradition poured into his head saying, you earn your righteousness, you earn your justification. He wrestles with it in Romans and he wrestles with it in Galatians and in Ephesians. And he comes out on the right side and he says, no, 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 you don't earn your justification. You receive it by faith alone. And you say, well, why couldn't you make better sense of James? Well, for one thing, he was running for his life, a lot of his life. So he didn't have always just time to sit down and think. He had a lot of time to do that, but there was a lot of time where he was sort of a fugitive, and he was hiding out, and he was in debates, and he was called before councils, and they wanted to know, did you write this? Do you teach this? Do you agree with this? Will you recant this? So he had a lot going on in his life. I don't like that he called the book of James an epistle of straw, and I think that you can actually fit James with Paul. I don't think they contradict each other. And let me just give you two verses. You look them up later. Write them down. Look them up later. The first one is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. Paul wrote that passage. He wrote that book. And Paul says in that passage, you ready? James preached the gospel. Paul thought James preached the gospel. Now write down Galatians 2, 1 to 10. You can look that one up later. That passage tells us that James was one of the first of the pillars of the church to welcome Paul into fellowship. They welcomed each other in fellowship. They, they thought the other taught the gospel. They did not think they disagreed on this issue. If they didn't think they disagreed, we need to use our brains and try to figure it out. So let me give you a few suggestions here. How many letters did Paul write in the New Testament? excluding Hebrews, we'll say 13, okay? He wrote a lot of letters. And in those letters, he spent a lot of time talking about soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. How does a person 
receive justification. That's a central thing that he talks about. He talks about the cross, what happened in the cross. He talks about why Jesus had to die for us and how grace works and how faith works and how we come into a relationship with God. That was his focus in many of these letters. How many books in the Bible did James write? One. And the point of James' book is not to talk about the cross. That may seem kind of blasphemous to you, but did you know in the book of James, the cross is not mentioned at all? Not talked about. That's not the point. That's not why he wrote it. James wrote a book to say, if you truly believe in Jesus, this is what your life is going to look like. And he spells it out from the beginning of the book all the way to the end, saying if you're the real deal, if you have real living faith, this is how you'll know. Your life will look like this. They're writing for two completely different purposes. And I think that when James says we're not justified by faith, I don't think he's using the word justified in the same sense that Paul is. This is a great, great danger in people who study the Bible only with a concordance, right? They look up a word in the Bible, justify. They look up all the verses that say justify, and they assume they all have to, justify has to mean the exact same thing in every passage. You pick the word, it's got to mean the exact same thing in every passage, and they ignore the context. And I think the key to what James is talking about is in verse 23. Look what James says in verse 23. Talking about Abraham, justified by works, he says. Verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You go back and you look at the two verses from Genesis that James quotes. One about the sacrifice from Isaac and one about this being counted as righteous. This second one in verse 23 happens way at the beginning when Abraham first meets God. And this stuff about Isaac happens way at the end after he's already met God. And James knew how to put those two passages together. And he understood, look, Abraham received righteousness from God as a gift when he believed. It's James 2.23. It's Genesis 15. When he believed. And that was, James says, fulfilled. James 2.23. When he offers Isaac as a sacrifice. And he's justified. And what James is talking about is not a legal declaration where God declares you righteous. But James is saying that faith way back there in Genesis 15 is proved to be real in the sacrifice of Isaac and what happened there. So he's using the word a little bit differently. That's perfectly fine. And the last thing I would say is look at James 2.10. I don't think James had any idea that we could earn the righteousness of God. This is what James says in James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Does that sound like a man who thinks that he can be good enough to earn righteousness from God by keeping the law? James understood, look, you can be righteous, 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 and if you have one slip up, no one has just one, but he's using this for, for emphasis. You have one, one slip-up. You're now accountable to the whole law. And you can pat yourself on the back that you haven't committed adultery or you haven't done what this person did or what that person did. But if you break the law, you're a lawbreaker. 
If you rob a bank and you stand before the judge, it's not going to help you to say to the judge, well, I've never hurt a child. The judge is going to say, well, that's great, but you robbed a bank. You're a lawbreaker, and there's a consequence. And James is saying, look, forget the illusion that you can be mostly good with God. If you break the law, you're a lawbreaker. He does not think that we can earn our justification, and he's using the word differently than Paul did. So, what are the challenges we face today? I'm going to go through these quickly. Challenges to sola fide today. Number one, legalism. This is people who say you must do certain things in order to have a right relationship with God. You must earn your way with him. This is sort of a dialing back of the teaching and going back to Rome and saying, yes, grace is important. Yes, faith is important. We all love Jesus. But you need to do X, Y, and Z in order to earn your way with God. This is why Paul wrote the book of Galatians. He planted these churches in Galatia. He shared the gospel with them. Then he left And a group of guys came behind him and said, look, we love Paul. We love Jesus. We're all about the Bible. You know, we want you to have the the greatest church you can have. You just need to make sure you follow all the Old Testament laws if you want to be in with God. You just got to make sure you do all those things. Yes, Jesus, but Jesus plus this. And Paul wrote to the church in Galatia the most scathing letter that he ever wrote. And he said, look, I don't care who comes If they preach a different gospel, even if it's an angel from heaven, and they preach something different than what I told you, let them be accursed. You could translate that, let them be damned. That's what Watson's talking about when he says this is a damnable doctrine. You miss it, and you lose everything. Luther said, you lose justification, you don't have a church. The church won't exist for one hour without the doctrine of justification. So legalism is a danger. And there are people today, listen, there are people in Odessa, Texas. I have had lunch with them. I've had them sit in my office and talk to me who look me square in the eye. And they say, they're church-going people. They say, I love Jesus. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I have faith in God. I know that I need God's grace. But I also know that I won't be saved unless I do X, Y, and Z. From the Old Testament law. I've got to do these things so that I can be right with God. This is not just some ancient battle that we have to fight. This is a present battle. Okay, For most of us, I imagine this is a struggle on a subconscious level, if nothing else. Right? We can sit in this room and I can say to you, look, God's grace is not infused to you so that it can charge up or charge down depending on your obedience. That's not how it works. And I can explain that to you, and I can say God makes this declaration based on what Christ has done, that you're righteous, and we can nod and fill the blanks in and all that stuff. But most of you, when you live your Christian life week in and week out, if you don't read your Bible, you probably go around feeling like God's mad at you. I didn't read my Bible today. God's kind of mad at me. Or you read your Bible and you knock off, you check off like 15 days in a row, like you're smoking it on the Bible reading program, and you're walking around like, oh, me and God are tight. Man, I just feel so close to him right now. And in your mind, you're going back to this idea of legalism. You're going back to, it's up to my performance to earn God's love. 
and to make me close to him. And the reformers would say, you got to be careful of that. The opposite challenge is what we call antinomianism. Anti means against. Namos is the Greek word for law. So this is sort of the teaching that there is no law and the idea that works don't matter at all. So legalism says you got to do the works to be right with God. Antinomianism says you can do whatever you want. Pray the right prayer, believe in Jesus, and you can do whatever it is that you want to do because you're not saved by works anyways, you're saved by grace. There's a dozen Bible passages we could go that just obliterate this idea. Paul even entertains the very question at one point in Romans. He says, should we just keep sinning so that God gives us more grace? Absolutely not. No. He says, that is insanity. That's not right. And the the biblical idea, the reformers and the Puritans and uh, orthodox Protestant, Protestant teaching would say, Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. They go together. You can't have one without the other. When you have true faith, repentance is going to be present. It doesn't mean that repentance is what saves you. You're saved by grace through faith. But when you have that faith, repentance is going to be there. Next challenge, mental assent. Mental assent. This is a big one in the Bible Belt. This is the idea that all that is required for you to be right with God is for you to give assent to a set of facts. It's really very, very similar to antinomianism. The idea is that faith, all faith is, is believing that something is true. So I'll just give you a a quick little story. Um, A couple years ago I wrote a, a little blog post and the newspaper asked me for a column every now and then, and I sent them this blog post, and it talked about conversion. What does conversion look like, and what are the, the marks of true conversion? And one of the things I said in that article was one of the marks of true conversion is repentance. If repentance hasn't happened, then conver- conversion hasn't happened. And I had a, a guy come into my office right over here. He's a former pastor in town. And he just kind of marched right in, pulled up a chair, leaned over, glared at me, and gave me about 30 minutes of like almost yelling lecture on why that was just terrible. Just the worst thing he'd ever read, and I was a big dummy, and I didn't know what I was talking about. And his point was, the end of it was, you have complicated faith. You have added to faith. He truly thought he was sitting in my office to defend this uh, Reformation teaching of sola fide, faith alone. And he said, by adding on repentance, you've added to the gospel. All that faith is, is giving mental assent. Just say, yes, I believe that that's true. And you're saved forever and always, no matter what. And I said, well... I don't think you really want to listen to me, but if you will for two seconds, I do believe in sola fide. I just believe that faith is more than mental assent. And the reformers believe that too. I didn't put this on your outline, but the reformers consistently say faith has three parts. And I'll give you the Latin words and what they mean. First they said genuine faith has notitia, that is knowledge. To have true faith, you have to know the gospel. You have to have understanding of it, right? It can't be 
unknown to you. You have to know it. Notitia, which is knowledge. They said, number two, true faith has a census, which is assent. Yes, I believe the facts that you're telling me are true. I have understanding of them, what Jesus did, how salvation works. I believe that that's true. And then they added one more thing to faith in saying true faith also has fiducia, which is trust. You've got to move past this just mental assent, yes, those things are true, but they've got to be true for you. And there has to be a personal trusting in these things. So be careful of the danger of mental assent. Can I tell you where I think that's the biggest danger? Is not the crazy guy that popped into my office. Here's the biggest danger for mental assent. It's children who go to church in the Bible Belt. Who go to Sunday school and praise the Lord. Their parents bring them to church and teach them the Bible and tell them about Jesus and all of that stuff. And they grow up. And my story, I... I don't remember a time where I didn't believe the truth about Jesus. I don't remember that time in my life because I grew up in church from the very first nursery class all the way up. And I'm grateful for that. But the danger is that as church leaders, we look at those kids at VBS or at church camp or youth camp or wherever, and we say they're nodding their head in assent, so that means they're ready to be baptized when really there are not all of these parts. There isn't maybe accurate understanding or there, maybe there isn't real assent or maybe there isn't personal trust. And that's a hard thing to figure out in someone else's life. But I think we need to use caution with that and not just rush in with young people and say they nod their head, they answer all the right questions, they're ready to get dunked in the baptistry. I think we need to be careful with that. One last challenge to this doctrine is Faith without Christ. And I think what I'm driving at here is just the idea a lot of people have today that people aren't all that into church, maybe. They're not all that into saying Jesus is the only way for a person to be saved. But they certainly would say, well, I'm a person of faith. I mean, I have faith. Not a ton of people in our culture, even as secular as we've gotten, there's not a ton of people who will look you in the eyeball and say, no, I faith, faith isn't important. Most people just still have this idea that faith matters. I have faith. I have faith in a higher power. I have faith in some supreme being. And uh, sometimes that's not centered on Christ. Or sometimes we elevate our faith over Christ. And we make our salvation contingent on how strong our faith is rather than on what Christ has done for us. And so I'm going to show you a a little video clip that I think is a nice transition between sola fide and sola Christus. And the point of this little clip is just to say, yes, you need to have faith, but you're not saved by the strength of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith, which is Jesus Christ. And so the guy speaking is D.A. Carson. He's a Canadian Baptist pastor slash professor slash theologian. He's one of the most brilliant guys alive today. And uh, he gives a little short story, just a couple of minutes, to illustrate the importance of faith. And it ties in with what we're going to talk about next week, which is Solus Christus. So here's a video. <laughs> 